morning, I, uh, uh, there's something very specific that's been on my heart all week, and uh, we get the opportunity to talk about today. It's going to be a little bit different than our normal preach, okay? I'm going to talk about some historical things. I'm going to talk about our role in this community and the land we live in, and uh, the opportunity that's at hand. Are you alive? Okay, would you join me in prayer for the word? Lord, I thank you for it. We commit it to you. We invite you, Holy Spirit. Would you breathe on your word this morning, bring transformation to our hearts, and uh, give us wisdom, Lord, that the world around us could be impacted. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this last week, a, uh, uh, the founding member of an organization called AIM passed away. It's American Indian Movement. Yeah, it was a political organization started in the 60s, uh, defending the rights and attempting to help bring uh, um, uh, justice and a reformation of how the uh, government was approaching the Native American population. That founder passed away this week, and when I heard the news, this church, our church, has, has uh, friends in the Dakota community, lots of them, and uh, it's dear to us. And the reason why it's dear to us is because God planted this church in their homeland, there's a history to the land that we live in and a responsibility that we share in bringing reconciliation and restoration to the people that uh, have impacted our history as well as in our future. Um, there's a, a divine partnership that God set up. When I saw that he had passed away, there's so many sort of pioneers, founders that are suddenly being taken in this generation. Uh, I don't know if you notice it, tune into the news, you're going to hear, it's, it's been happening uh, quite often, where somebody who was the founding person of something that was significant passes away, or a pioneer in their industry passes away. There's a, a sudden taking, there's a transition, I talked about it last week from here, saying, listen, there's a divine transition at hand in our generation, and if you tune in, you get to participate, because the Lord's got an assignment for us as a people, you know? And uh, so I saw that happen, when I, and when I saw it, the Holy Spirit uh, highlighted, it caused me to remember, and, and really it just came to my heart, like, wow, it's been a long time since we as a church have talked about our assignment concerning the land. This church has an assignment to the Minnesota River Valley. We're here strategically. When... We were looking for property, and you know the church had grown, and we had gone through several transitions as a, as a church, looking for a place um, to sort of permanently dwell. Uh, <clears throat> in the midst of that, the Lord gave us an assignment to walk the Minnesota River Valley, to prayer walk it. I prayer walked the Minnesota River Valley, and when I completed it, the Lord opened the land and gave us a facility. It was, it was amazing. Could not have planned it. It was totally divine. The Holy Spirit orchestrated that we would prayer walk the region, and in the process of taking responsibility and owning the call to the land, then the Lord opened the land up, 
gave us a facility, and now there's a permanency to this ministry that wasn't there before. Weird. <laughs> Something in it. God in it. This morning, I want to talk to you about the environment that we live in, that our church is planted in, and that you as a people are called to affect, to bring transformation to. Are you with me this morning? Every one of us is affected by environments, atmospheres. Your home has an atmosphere to it. Your home has uh, an experience that even when you are not actively participating, it affects you. For instance, you could grow up in a home where mom and dad fought a lot. And that antagonism and that tension that's in the home, that atmosphere that's created in that home, it affects the kids. We know that. That's an easy one to see. The physical space creates an atmosphere as well. You've got clutter everywhere and there's no organization and there's no order. You're going to notice as the kids that are being raised in that environment will look for sanctuary because they can't find peace in the environment. And so their room might become their personal sanctuary or their bed might become their personal sanctuary or a drawer or you'll watch as people try to bring order out of the chaos. The environment itself is causing effect in their experience. Your home life does not have to be like hell. Because you're a child of God, you can bring heaven to earth in that environment. Your home life can be such that when outsiders, friends, other people from the neighborhood come over and they walk into your doors, the presence of peace overwhelm them. And any chaos and anxiety and stress that they're under, all of a sudden they're delivered from it as they come into your atmosphere. That's a thing. Your work experience, people get, keep, people get affected by their work environment. Man, if you have a team that surrounds you and cheers for you. When ideas come up, people champion your idea and they're on the same team working to see good things happen. Your boss is for you, like not against you. There's no, that, that atmosphere is one of teamwork and we're working together to accomplish something good. Man, that's amazing. Peace, that pressure that you feel is positive versus negative. Like, what happens in the people that are part of that kind of atmosphere? Man, good things come out of them, doesn't it? it? It creates an atmosphere that draws the best out of people. Or you could have an antagonistic environment at work where it's competitive and people are trying to take advantage of one another and... And so you wouldn't dare share your idea because your idea is what separates you from the pack. And so this competitive environment focuses on you and you don't give of yourself. And as a result, it's stressful and the pressure isn't positive. It can break you down. Has anybody ever experienced that kind of environment? Come on. What's amazing is that an individual can have a rock-solid or have a positive, strong sense of identity. And that identity will push back the negative atmospheres. 
that identity, your core identity, that thing can rise up and be like a force field around you where you know who God made you to be. You know your purpose. You have a sense of destiny on your life. And so if somebody's going to come and tell you that you're nothing, that's not going to get in. Why? Because your shield of faith, your, your identity, that sense of purpose, your personal metron, your personal sphere of influence, man, when you show up in those negative environments, you transform the environment. It doesn't impact you. Right? We call those people world changers. Like a seed, God plants you into dark places and boom, the kingdom starts to take root. Isn't, isn't that the assignment? That God, like, so loved the world that he sent his son, that redemption and eternal life has taken root in the people, and then instead of rescuing us off the rock, he left us here? Why? To transform this world so that on earth as it is in heaven. You and I have a role in this. Our job is to bring transformation to environments. And man, I am somebody who believes absolutely that we could have an environment as a people where we are stewarding this spiritual atmosphere, you and I, that when somebody comes in and they've had a horrible week, that they literally just come on the property and there is so much kingdom good happening, they, they walk into that environment and the negativity doesn't have root, doesn't have opportunity, right? People are prophesying, people are ministering, people are releasing good things over them and so literally the darkness that was they were carrying, the oppression of it, they deliver of it as they come into an atmosphere. Come on, man, we have that every Sunday morning as we worship. I've heard so many stories, people literally just like driving onto the property and feeling the heaviness lift. Okay, those are check your demon at the door days, right? Like, it ain't allowed here. And you and I tend to that environment. So when people go, yin, 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 we go, hey, isn't God good? Hump, like, <laughs> we don't allow that to just permeate the atmosphere. We tend to it. We're stewards. Now, it's very possible that you could be experiencing an environment. You grew up in it. You know, that's the amazing thing about kids is that kids don't know anything outside of your world. So they just receive what mom and dad have created. They don't know any different. You could be experiencing an atmosphere and you don't know that it's affecting you. And so it goes unchecked. And that unchecked thing can cause problems. It's destructive. Sometimes there can be the stress, the anxiety that people feel, and literally it has nothing to do with you. It's the land you live in. We live in a land that has a history. God planted this church in a land with a deep history, and that history causes effect on people. And you and I are those who are called to bring change to those kinds of environments. We don't just sit here. We rise up and bring transformation where darkness has entered. I think that it's possible 
that we could have cities that God is moving in to where sickness on a person who moves to that city, the environment of health can bring deliverance to them. I think that there are cities already known for that. I think there are places where God is doing a work and the opportunity at hand that we could bring such transformation to that quite literally, heaven can be manifesting and the darkness no longer has opportunity because people are being affected by what heaven's doing, not just. We're ambassadors of the king. It's our job to do so. Nikki and I were um, driving through a town, and uh, it was a town that we drove through quite regularly. Uh, it was part of our commute, and so we were driving through this town one day, and uh, I noticed something. It was, it was like when we got to this town, there was this sort of conversation that picked up between us that was antagonistic. It was just like this pressure showed up in our conversation. And for some reason, today, that day, it just clicked for me, like, huh, that was weird. And I felt it. And then we left that town, and I felt it lift. And I noticed it. And so when I noticed it, I began to pay attention every time we drove through that town. And so I would pay attention to what was going on with the kids. And sometimes, literally, everything's peaceful and fine in the car. We go drive through that town, and all of a sudden, people start arguing. There's this extra pressure in the air, and there's antagonism towards each other. And it wasn't that someone did something. It was literally that we came into an atmosphere that had that in it. I was ministering in a nation that, by the way, once you see it, it no longer has power over you. Once you recognize it, you go, ah, the jig is up. You don't get to just have your way. I was, I, I was ministering in a nation, and we, we flew to this nation. I brought a team with me, and we land in this nation. And as soon as we landed, it felt like someone put, like, a plastic bag over my body and then chucked me into a pool. You know, the, the atmosphere around me just closed up, and I felt like I could not minister. And I, 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 I'm a person who knows how to sort of push back at that stuff, but nothing that I did affected it. I, the whole, we were there for 10 days. All 10 days, I, it was horrible. It was a rough experience for me personally. I went through a bunch of trials. It was very difficult. Soon as we got in the airplane and picked off the ground, it was like somebody just pulled me right out of the pool, took the bag off, boom, we're done. Strange Another nation, right next door, okay? Right next door. Went to that nation, and when I landed in it, it felt so open and inviting. It was literally like the people were pulling ministry out of me. Wide open. Such a difference in experiences. Lands itself have environments to them. And if you're unaware you can come under that atmosphere and it affects your life without you recognizing it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? 
I'm going to share a story out of the scriptures this morning that it's a little bit like a parable because there is, are many like really pertinent points to the land that we live in. And it's prophetic in its nature that it, it gives us a picture of what's possible or what we could do and how we could bring change. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Um, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. 2 Samuel 21. Um, or we're going to put it on the screen as well. I'm going to read the first couple of verses and say some stuff and then finish it out. So it says, 2 Samuel 21, starting in verse 1. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. So it wasn't separated by years. It was three years in a row. David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is because Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. That's why the famine's there. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were were not of the sons of Israel. They weren't descendants. They were a remnant that were left over of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and for Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement? Everyone say atonement. That you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. So the goal here is that we fix what's wrong and that you stop being a thorn in the side and you start to be a part of the blessing. That's the goal. David's asking them, hey, what can we do? This is a, kind of a strange story, okay? But when Joshua and the Israelites came into the promised land, God told them that they had to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. That was the assignment, all right? They went to war. They pushed the inhabitants of the land out or they died. God gave the possession of the land to the Israelites and they were to not leave anyone in the land Because if they left them, eventually they would become a snare to the people of Israel. As Joshua is doing this, there is this band of people that show up and they're in totally like ripped up, worn out clothes. Their bags are filled with like moldy bread and it looks like they have been on a journey for a very long time. And they tell Joshua, look, we've been on this long journey because we heard that God's with you and we don't want you to destroy us. So make a covenant with us so that you won't kill us and we'll be a blessing to you. This is like the deal. And Joshua looked at them and went, oh, they're from a far off place. It's okay. So Joshua made a covenant with them and it turns out they're neighbors. They lived right there. These were the Gibeonites. They lived in the land that Israel was supposed to drive them out of and instead they just lived right there. And so it became a problem. There's backstory as to why Saul got all like zealous and tried to kill them all. But what happened here is this, is that, and I want you to hear this, 40 generations before Saul did this, Joshua made a covenant with them. 40 generations had passed. And the covenant that Joshua made with them 40 generations earlier was still in effect. And when Saul killed them, he broke the covenant that Israel had made with them. 
And then God says to David, David's going, why are we having a famine, Lord? Now, a famine is not like there was a run at the grocery store and there's no corn and beans left. A famine is that it's not raining in the land. There's no food to be had at all. The cattle are dying. The water's run out. It's a problem. The famine means nobody's eating. Not just that Saul's household had a problem for breaking the covenant, but that everyone is experiencing the bad time. So King David goes to the Lord, approaches the Lord. What do we do about this, Lord? Why is this famine here? What, we need to stop this famine. He's praying that the famine would stop. The people are praying that the famine would stop. And God says the famine's there because of what Saul did. Look at what happens. David goes to the Gibeonites and asks them what needs to be done so that this is no longer an issue. God's people couldn't solve it themselves. God's people praying did not fix the problem. There's a broken covenant and atonement needs to be made. It can't just go unchecked. You have to, you, time didn't heal it. Forty generations had passed and it was still in effect. Did you know that our government broke covenants with the native people three generations ago? It ain't even that long. And isn't it interesting that God said to David, you got to go to them and they'll tell you when it's fixed. The solution or the key was in the hand of the person who got violated, not in the perpetrator's hand. In other words, we don't get to determine when the thing's done. It was like this first service too. It's like not even golf claps. It's fine. Just hang on for the ride. You're going to get an education this morning, and there's an awakening that's taking place because there's actually an assignment attached to it. Forty generations had passed. The sin of Saul was bringing a consequence for everybody. David goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, go to the Gibeonites. This is verse 4. 2 Samuel 21, verse 4. The story continues. The Gibeonites said to David, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house. In other words, money ain't going to solve this thing. And nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. David said to them, I'll do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us, Saul, who plan to exterminate us from remaining within the border of Israel. Let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. The king said, I'll give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So, king, so the king took the two sons of Rizpah and took five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, and gave them to the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord so that the seven of them fell together. 
And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Isn't this a fun story? And Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of the harvest until it rained from the sky, she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them, the victim, the hanging people, or uh, by day, or the beasts of the field by night. So this is the mom of two of these sons. Stayed with the bodies and refused to let birds land on them or animals defile the bodies. And it says, until it rained. When it was told David that Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done this, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square, where the Philippines hanged them on the day of the Philippines struck down Saul. And he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in, his, in the grave of Kish, Saul's father. And thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by the prayers for the land. And then after that, prayers worked. This story, I mean, it's whack. <laughs> but oh, buddy, does it loaded with, with some stuff. The juice is on this one. God's people were experiencing a famine because Saul had broken a covenant. Their leader had broken a covenant. Okay? Their leader, the king. Okay? You gotta, uh, Israel represents God's kingdom. Saul is the king of God's people who represent God's government on the earth. That's who Israel is at the time. Christ Jesus, and through his covenant, has made us sons of God, and we are ambassadors of this kingdom now. In that day, this is what Israel is. So, it's, so when, king, when King Saul violates the covenant, he's, he's a representative of God. There's a breakdown in the fabric of what's going on in the land. This is a problem. The covenant is broken, the violation happens, it's not that God is causing a famine, it's that this is what happens when the sons of God, people who are called to steward the land, violate the land. The environment changes, it comes under dark things, it's not good. It's not that God's causing the famine, it's that this is the result of breaking the covenant. Do you see this? And so when David goes to God and goes, hey, fix this, God goes, hey, you fix it. You're asking me to do something I told you to do. Are we not the children of God? Are we not the ones who are called to steward the kingdom? Are we not the ones who are supposed to right the wrong? Are we not the ones with the... Are you... Yeah. 
God's people were experiencing a famine because of Saul, and the solution could not be achieved by God's people alone. The power to break the curse of consequence was in the hand of the people who were violated, not God's people, but the ones who were sinned against. This is important to recognize because there are consequences in our land. And we can't just move on from them. We can't just push forward ignoring it. Until the people who were injured have their injustice resolved. David recognized that the Gibeonites, if we just ignore the problem, they're going to continue to be a source of pain in God's blessing. If we just ignore it, it's going to be a perpetual issue. And so David went to them and said, listen, how do I, what do we need to do to make atonement for the broken covenant and have it so that you are a blessing to God's plan and you're not just always in the way. You're not just standing there obstinate, but that you will be able to partner with and bless what God's doing in the land, not just feel like you are separate from it. Man, I'm talking to you without talking to you this morning. I hope you recognize that. The solution could not be bought. The Gibeonites did not want money or possessions. What they wanted was atonement. They said, no, we do not accept Bitcoin. (laughs) PayPal won't work. Cash isn't going to do it. We want atonement. We want the injustice paid for. You got to solve the injustice. So what they do, they ask for seven of Saul's sons to be hung. And that would satisfy justice for them. Look at verse 11. When it was told that David, what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went back and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, gathered the bones of the people who were hung, and then went and buried them in Saul's father's grave, the family grave, and put Saul and Jonathan to rest finally, and his descendants to rest. Something takes place here. David, when he hears about Rizpah, okay, Rizpah is out there day and night making sure birds and animals don't get her kids. I mean, man, can you feel that? The mom is out there tending her dead children. And it says that she's out there doing this until it rained. What did rain mean? It meant the end of the famine. The famine is there's no rain. This is the problem. And so she is out there and she's making sure that the cost means something. 
that it wasn't in vain that she didn't lose two of her sons in vain. That Saul's household is not cut off in vain. That it means something. And she's going to make sure that the result of what it's supposed to be takes place. And so she's going to be out there making sure that nobody can erase, not even the animals, the cost. And she's out there until it rains. And when it rains, what's it mean? It means there was meaning in the loss of her children. It means that the curse has been broken. It means that their prayers are being answered. It's the picture of an intercessor that it has cost something to. Man, it's, it is the, oh, man, I have so many stories. and It is... It is year after year, Dakota Sioux riding on horseback 300 miles to come to Mankato, praying the entire time for reconciliation and arriving in the place where their descendants, 38 plus two of them, were hung. Praying for reconciliation between peoples. It's the cost and staying the course and making sure that what it costs means something. Is what you have lost have meaning? Is what you have lost the cost that you've paid to get where you're at? Has it found fulfillment yet? If not, then you should stay out there holding on to it because God will follow through on his end of the deal. Your intercession matters. You're holding to it. Oh, man. And when David heard about it, it triggered something in him, and he went, oh, Saul's family does not have resolution for when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. we got to bring this whole chapter to a close. We, we need to... The people need to find peace. We need, to, we need to settle all of this. And so he goes and he gets the remains and brings them to his father's household. We have a holistic moment that brings an end to the broken covenant. There's atonement made, and we reconcile a family and bring a close to it. And then it says, after all these things, then the prayers worked. Because something had to be set right before. Hmm. I am in no way, I mean in zero way, I am in no way suggesting that we round up the descendants of those who wrote and broke covenants to the Native Americans. Wouldn't fix anything anyway. I'm in no way suggesting that we round up the captains of slave ships. We're not going to find justice in that. It's not the day that we're in. But I am in every way suggesting that we live in a land with some unresolved issues. Anybody else can agree with that? We got some unresolved issues.
And time is not going to make them go away. Time, 40 generations passed between Joshua and Saul. 40. Time ain't going to heal this thing. We have to do something. We're part of this process. There's an invitation. Why? Because you are representatives of heaven. And the key, as is always, when injustice has taken place, the person who experienced the injustice, they're carrying a weight, a painful weight. Injustice is a cross no one should bear. Injustice is a horrible thing to lug around with you for a lifetime. Time doesn't fix it. It travels through families. Injustice does. It gets passed on. It's not because people are so bitter and they're retelling terrible stories. No, no. The injustice exists, and the injustice is supposed to find justice. This doesn't go away. It's real. How do we bring atonement is the thing that we need to draw our attention to. The sin of man and the breaking of covenant and all these kind of things, there's only one true and honest and real solution. It's that Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It's that what he paid brings about full atonement. You and I have received mercy. We're to give mercy. I want you to recognize a couple of things here. First, the person who gets to decide when something is resolved is the one who is injured, not the perpetrator, and certainly not an outsider. Remove this phrase from your vocabulary. Come on, you just got to get over it. Remove it. Get rid of it. Christians don't talk like that. We don't talk like that. Get over it. Just move on. No. Mm -mm. Your God doesn't behave like that. Either should you. Amen, Pastor Jamie. All right. Man, I'm going to need to... I'm going to go home and look myself in, the, in a mirror and be like encouraging myself after this one. You, just, you did a great job today. Thank you. Oh, come on. No, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. I, I've said this. Way, that, no, no. No, 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 no. It don't count. It doesn't count. All right. Second. Okay. First. Person who gets to decide when the thing is done is the one who got violated, not the people who violated. All right, here we go. Second, the person who suffered the injustice often holds the keys to remove the consequences that they themselves are experiencing. Okay, when you carry an injustice around, it's like cancer. Eats away at you. You never can solve it. There's nothing you can do to get rid of it. It's like a, it's like a weight Okay, and so if you're carrying around injustice, now this man, this is a tricky demon. This one is a tricky demon. Okay, you should, you should hear me. Christians think that carrying injustice around is an assignment from God. A lot of Christians believe that. It's a burden from the Lord. No, it ain't. It's a demonic lie, and you should let it go. 
I'm serious, that one will kill you. It ain't yours to carry. Someone paid a price for that, you should let it go. All right? Okay, it's not yours to carry. The person who suffered the injustice holds the keys. This is important to recognize because when a person is a victim, if they don't realize that they hold the key, they'll have a victim spirit that will invalidate anything everyone else does. Right? So you stay sick instead of getting cured. It's no good. But let me tell you, man, if someone's stuck under that thing, the last thing they need to hear is, come on, just get over it. Nah! You're not helping anything. Third, the cost of injustice is far-reaching. It is carried by families for generations. The land and the people affected by injustice don't just go away over time. Injustice needs to be addressed, not ignored. It takes real talk. Now, this is what I am extremely encouraged about this generation. Okay, the young ones. The young ones want to talk. It's a social generation. Social generation. I am deeply encouraged by this because a solution, a real one, is going to appear in the midst of the next generation. As soon as we can pry authority out of the hands of the ones that refuse to. When you refuse to talk about something and just ignore it, it doesn't go away. And we have pain that keeps being recycled. And that is not, what's the point of that? Come on, it's time. And God's doing that in this generation, I'm telling you. There's a work of heaven that we're involved. Fourth, injustice does not take PayPal, Bitcoin, or cash. Money will not solve the problem. You can't just throw money at it. Oh, here's a budget line. It ain't going to solve it. We tried that for years. It doesn't actually fix it. Even if the current generation is willing to take money, it won't remove the consequence of what we've experienced. The only thing that pays for it is the blood of Jesus. <laughs> um, injustice is a horrible weight to carry. I really do believe that when you carry the stress of that around, that it really is like a cancer. It, it will, it'll kill you in the end. It's bringing, it's degrading your experience in life. It's like, it's like carrying a backpack full of rocks around. It's weighing you down, for real. And it's causing injury. But how do you let it go? Christians are commanded to forgive. Commanded. you got to forgive. Matthew 6, 14 says that if you don't forgive, your father won't forgive you. I mean, that's kind of simple. You should forgive. Forgiving means like, ah, between us, you don't owe me anything. This thing between us is done. But it doesn't restore the relationship, and the consequence is still being carried by the person who carried it, who got hurt. This is why you as a Christian, you've forgiven them, but why do I still feel this way? You ever had that question? Why? And then, then someone is so, they're brilliant, and they're like, well, that's because you have to forgive them 70 times 7, and, you know, you just keep doing it until it works. Like, right, how do you fix the lamp with a hammer? Just keep hitting it. It'll work. If it didn't work, it didn't work. Let's move forward. Let's assume we don't know what we're talking about. Okay? If you've given that analogy, please forgive me. I've given that before, too, and I was also wrong. Okay? 
You don't just keep forgiving. That's not how you erase the, the injustice. Injustice isn't solved by just, just get over it. That's not how it's solved. Okay? Injustice requires the weight of it being solved through justice. Injustice requires atonement so that justice can be served. The person who's experienced injustice is looking for justice. It's pretty straightforward. But how do you get justice this side of eternity? Eye for an eye doesn't work. They hurt you, you hurt them. You'll feel better. No, you won't, and you'll go to jail. Right? My dad hurt me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to end my relationship with him. Emancipation. Right? I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Oh, that fixed it, didn't it? All your pain just went away now that you don't have a dad. Good. Did it fix it? Nope, it didn't. No, because you can't solve it with a hammer. The only thing that pays for injustice is the blood of Jesus. How do you make the injustice then be solved? How do you do it? I'm a dad. I have eight children. We have lots of stories in our household, but this particular one, we had a child who was stealing from one of their siblings. And they kept taking money. And little things, you know, and at first it was like, oh, maybe you just misplaced it. But then as it kept happening, it just became obvious, like, oh, man, no. Someone in our household is actually taking from another person in our household. Like, it's not good. This happened a while ago. This, this isn't, you know, please don't ask my kids, which one of you was it? Like, <laughs> it was me, okay? Dad did it. So... So this, this thing is unfolding, though, and so, so at first, that, that the child is being stolen from, just like, ah, you know, they're just, just moving forward. And they had a suspicion of who they thought it was, but we couldn't prove it. There just wasn't really clarity, and eventually they came and talked to me, right, and told me what's happening, told mom and I what's happening. And so they're saying, oh, this person, you know, stealing, I think it's this person. Why? Because they keep showing up with money, and they didn't have it before, and like, eh, you know, like this kind of that thing, but, but there wasn't clarity. And you don't just go in guns blazing, accusing people of stuff. Like that's not going to help you, right? That's how you hurt relationships. And so, so we, we found ourselves in this precarious situation because it just kept happening. And, and so we said, hey, listen, honey, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. And so this is a process of, of the choice, right? Of, okay, I'm not going to resent. I'm not going to be angry. I'm letting it go. I'm I'm forgiving. They didn't want the relationship destroyed, but every time they were around, they kept feeling the tension, even though they had forgiven. And so they came, and they shared that this continued to happen. It hasn't stopped, and they're forgiving, but it's not really fixing things, and, and they didn't know if they should confront. And you can feel the tension sort of going in the family, and, and this, is, this is what ends up happening. It had to have been the Holy Spirit. I said to her, listen, You need to trust me. I want you to trust daddy that it will be taken care of. I said, here is all the money and anything that this person stole from you. If you have any loss, I want you to come to me with it. I want you to tell me and I will pay for it. So there's no loss. Isn't that how God works with you? Anytime someone, you get blessed, come on. Someone stole from you, but... (laughs) 
The Lord's covering it. He always does. Right? He heaps blessing on us. And so I, you're not going to feel the cost, okay? And you forgive, but then I want you to let it go. I want you to give it to Dad. It's not your responsibility to make sure that they confess and make it right. It's not your responsibility. That's mom and dad's responsibility. Do you know what happens when you do that? The tension lifts, and then the relationship can be restored. It's still a process to it. There was still a reconciliation process. And what's amazing is it gave time for the other person to finally confess and start to make it right. But what would have happened had we gone in guns blazing? You did this, you did that, pow, pow, pow. We'll burn the bridges of relationships, we'll destroy any kind of possibility for intimacy in the family. Isn't it amazing how quickly things that were good can turn bad if you don't take care of them? And King David had a situation where his own daughter was was raped, and when the sons came to talk to dad about it, dad didn't do anything. And so the boys took it in their own hands, ends up bringing destruction to the family long term. The very son who rebels against David is the one who took things into his own hands, the division of the household, division of the kingdom, and all of it stems back to a dad who did not and was not willing to be responsible Church, you and I have been given an amazing tool. Jesus paid for our sins. You got forgiven. But not only that, mercy has come and taken away the weight of injustice off of your life, and he took care of it. When you're sinned against, it's demanded that you forgive them but also that you give mercy. And this is what it looks like. It looks like you letting go of your claim on injustice. You can't claim injustice and let it go at the same time. You have to actually let go of your claim. This was not just, and I need to get, I need to get mine. You gotta repay this, this thing. As long as you hold that, it's like a weight holding your life down. The key is in your hand. But when that injustice comes on your life, if you will, instead of demanding payment, nope, we got to fix this. That sneaky demon convinces the Christians, this is the burden we got to bear. It's ours to carry. We'll pray for it until it fixes it. Uh, nope, prayers won't work if we don't fix the injustice. Can't make this one backwards. Our job is this. When justice comes, we go, I am relinquishing my claim to this injustice, and I am giving it to Jesus, the righteous judge, who will make sure it gets taken care of. You're not letting it go as if injustice just goes away. No, no, no. It will be made right, but not by you. When you relinquish your claim and you give it to Jesus, the scripture says now you can do good to your enemies and it heaps burning coals on their head and it quickens their judgment. 
In other words, you can be good to someone who's been bad to you, and the Lord starts to intervene even quicker. Boom. He takes care of it. There's some individuals in here. You hold keys. You hold keys because injustice actually has happened to you, to your family, even to descendants. It's real. No one's saying it's not. But maybe God redeemed you so that you could be those who bring transformation to the world around you. You hold the keys of mercy. You hold the keys, the ability to stand in the gap, like right, Rizpa, who's make sure that the cost that it cost you, cost that cost your family, cost that it, you make sure that the outcome of justice, the outcome of atonement actually comes to pass. How do you do that? By standing in the gap, by holding to it, by continuing to declare mercy in the face of cries for justice. Nope, you've got to cry for mercy. You've got to release it. You've got to let go of it. And in doing so, you'll actually release the real solution. Those of us who are sitting in here, and that doesn't necessarily apply to you in a corporate way, I promise you, individually, you've had people wrong you. If you want to make it right in your family, you want your family restored, man, release mercy. Release mercy. Quit holding on to the injustices. Every time you get together, somebody mentions that one thing, and then World War III starts off again. It goes back in dormant, right, for months, and then every Christmas, boom, there it is again, like... Let's get rid of that stuff instead of letting it just reemerge generation after generation. If you've been personally wronged, instead of carrying the injustice around, give it to Jesus. And I'm not just being like flippant like that. I literally mean transfer your call for justice. They did me wrong, Lord. I'm giving this to you because I trust you that you will make it right. The blood of Jesus and his mercy is the only solution to actually heal the land, for real. God has placed us as a church in this physical land because it is strategic. There are strategic things that have happened here in history. There are strategic things continuing to happen here. We have a generation at hand who's willing to talk about it. I kind of wonder what will take place if we can put the tools of mercy in the hands of of those next generations. I wonder what God will do in our day. You alive? Just stand to your feet. Your household doesn't need to feel like hell. You can cultivate an atmosphere of heaven. One of the main keys is making sure it's a merciful household and not one that's always pointing the finger. Teach your kids how to do this and you'll live in paradise. Your job and your workplace, man, you're a key holder. I know they've done you wrong, but you can turn this thing around so that heaven can exist in that workplace. It doesn't need to be like it is currently. God wants to do something powerful through you. Just put a hand on your own heart. Holy Spirit of God, I thank you that, Lord, I, I, I sowed seed this morning, just rapid fire on them, but Lord, I'm asking that you would take the word and like a a, a skillful surgeon that you would expose the root that the root of of injustice could be exposed Lord that we could hand it off to you so Holy Spirit right now 
we invite you, Lord, that you would expose that in our hearts, that we could give it to you. Listen, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's a simple one, but I want you to walk away with it so that you can do this again when injustice pops in your heart, okay? It goes like this, okay? I want you to repeat after me, okay? It goes like this. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price and purchasing my sin. Jesus, somebody has done me wrong. And here is the situation. And then you would share it with him, okay? You talk to him about it, how it's made you feel, all that. You got to get it up and out. Lord Jesus, I trust you. You are the righteous judge. And I know that you will bring about justice. So I surrender my claim on injustice and I give it to you. And I choose to give mercy to them. Church, that prayer will set you free. Lord, I thank you for each one here today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to minister and that you would do what only you can do in the days ahead. Thank you for the land that we live in and the opportunity to bring reconciliation to people, to bring reconciliation to nations, people groups, races. Lord, that you are doing a work in our day, and we welcome it. Lord, I thank you that you've given us this place in the land, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you work through us to bring transformation to the River Valley and the Twin Cities area and beyond. Lord, I thank you that you would do that, Lord, that that reformation, that reconciliation will produce a harvest that souls upon souls will come into your kingdom, Lord, because the rain of heaven will wash our land. God, I thank you for this. Declare these things this morning. Commit them to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody who dared agree with that said, amen. God bless you guys. Have an amazing, amazing week.